Hi, I'm Lan Epp from LeanPub, and in this Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Leonardo Giordani. Based in London, Leonardo is currently Senior Infrastructure Engineer at We Got Pop, a company that makes innovative software used in film production workflows. You can follow Leonardo on Twitter at TW underscore L Giordani and read his blog, The Digital Cat, on tech subjects at blog.thedigitalcatonline.com. Leonardo is the author of the LeanPub book, Clean Architectures in Python, A Practical Approach to Better Software Design. His book is meant to help people discover test-driven development methods and practices for creating clean architectures in their programming, regardless of their particular architecture or development methodology. In this interview, we're going to talk about Leonardo's background and career, professional interests, his book, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about his experience using LeanPub to self-publish his writing. So thank you, Leonardo, for being on the Front Matter podcast. Thank you for inviting me. It's quite an introduction. I usually like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. Can you tell us a little bit about where you grew up and how you first became interested in computers and technology? Uh, You write in your book that you got a taste of the free software movement in the 80s, and I was wondering if you were into programming as a kid. Cool. Uh, Yeah. Um, So uh, I was born in Italy, and I grew up in a very small village in in the Dolomites, uh, which are the mountains between northern Italy and Austria. Uh, Believe me, those are among the most beautiful places in the world. I know um, I can sound a bit biased. Uh, I sent you some pictures, then you you can decide. Um, However, uh, there are are many, how do you say, backwater villages there. You know, I don't don't mean it in a negative sense. Uh, On the contrary, like life runs at, at a low pace. You are immersed in nature. Uh, things are somehow simpler there. Uh, however, technically speaking, they are on the outskirts of the world. Uh, so sometimes nowadays when I investigate computer history or, you know, facts on the Internet, I realize that like my timeline is a bit shifted uh, because what happened in, in USA at a certain point happened in Italy like Three years later, it happened in my village five years later. So sometimes it's like, really? Intel produced the 486 in 1989? What? <laughs> so what was I saying? Yeah, um, I spent 19 years there, you know, attending school and doing my, my, my life as a teenager. In, in 1987, um, I checked the date yesterday with my father. Um, I got my hands on a ZX Spectrum. Uh, which my father bought uh, as a part of a like um, a computer course for him. That unfortunately never happened. But my father was always, you know, like struggling, t- trying to to get some something new to learn. However, I got the computer uh, and this very simple textbook, more uh, a bunch of sheets uh, about programming. Um, and I remember this uh, cartoon character, um, uh, like uh, holding a box uh, with a number in it and, and, and with a name printed on it. And this this was my uh, my introduction to variables. And that's you know where everything started with with this cartoon character. Uh, I was ten at the time, so I started trying to uh, to say. Uh, code things, you know, uh, like um, colored lines, boxes, loops, printing, uh, hi, how are you, and so on, usual initial stuff. And the, the, the year, uh, uh, one year later, uh, in 1988, my father uh, bought a um, PC, uh, an, an Amstrad 8086, uh, and there I started learning uh, Pascal, 
with this amazing Boland version is still one of the best things I ever used. Uh, and then I got in touch with the assembly programming, which I, I, I completely fell in love with. Uh, I had um, this book by Peter Norton, uh, still remember it, that was you, like guiding the reader through um, programming a simplified version of the Norton utilities. And uh, it, it, was am it was amazing, uh, mind-blowing. Um, I don't know, I eventually had to move to higher level languages, you know, but I had I have to say that what I like the most is still uh, still low level assembly programming. This is one of the best things I I, I learned. Um, as for the um, free software movement, uh, I probably should change that day to late eighties or nineties because it's more realistic. However, like what what I wanted to say there is. Um, so I grew up in a world where computer science was still in, um, how do you say, uh, in its infancy, you know. The atmosphere was still that of a, a free share of knowledge. I, I distinctly remember this. I didn't have any, um, what is called, uh, BBS connection at, at the time. It was too expensive. So I wasn't in contact with any real community. Um, but the feeling you had of the whole thing, uh, like like uh, through magazines, for example, uh, I don't know, how can I describe it? Like a, a bunch of explorers, you know, helping each other to, to, to conquer this uh, new country, you know, computer science, if you see what I mean, um, rather than the, the corporate view of, oh, this is my secret code, you know, don't, don't mess with it. Um, I don't know, it's a, it's a complex topic, but, um, what happens now with open source, what happened in, in the late years with uh, open source and stack overflow, for example, these things. Uh, for me, these things are somehow nature because they are like uh, back to the origin of how software was conceived, so to speak. And uh, how did you develop an interest in cryptography specifically? So I... Um, I always loved math and and also algorithms. Well, maybe algorithms, not always, but I, I remember um, I, I, when I discovered um, I had some text file in my on my PC that was explaining how the compression algorithm worked, like the zip algorithm. It was it was incredible. So, uh, so loving math and algorithms, I would say probably cryptography is the perfect match. Um, but uh, I, I actually struggled to remember um, when I first um, started studying it um, seriously, so to speak. Um, I believe it happened uh, later, around 2000, 2001, probably, yes. Because I got this book, yes, definitely, I, I got this book um was entitled um, The Code Book, Simon Singh. It's like a brief history of cryptography. It's, it's a 400 pages or something. Uh, it knocked me out. It was like, uh, I, this, this thing is amazing. You know, this, this science is amazing. And then when I got to the uh, World Wars, the second, you know, it was like, give me an Enigma machine now. I, 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 I want it. Uh, 
And then I bought Code Breakers, which is uh, a book by David Kahn. Uh, it's like 1,000 pages of Give Me an Enigma Now. <laughs> it's really amazing. Uh, these are um, history books. Um, I, I got uh, involved with the thing. And in the meanwhile, I started um, like digging into the um, more theoretical side of it, you know. Um, later... Um, some years later, I took the Stanford uh, Cryptography One online course. Uh, it was amazing. It was very difficult to follow. You know, I was working at the time, so I had to study during the evening. Uh, amazing, but probably, well, not the right time anymore. However, uh, back uh, on track, I, it, it never became my job. Um, but I would say probably it's the second thing I love the most, you know, after lower level programming. Um, yeah, uh, if I can, I would say I, def I definitely like um, this war between cryptographers and code breakers. Uh, it's like a puzzle, you know. Uh, it's like, like the war between... Um, a game production companies and crackers, you know, about uh, copy protection systems. I'm not endorsing illegal activities, you know, <laughs> just to be clear. But I'm in love with this game, you know, like, oh, you think this is going to be impossible to read? I'm going to outsmart you and read it. Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> you studied at Politecnico di Milano, the oldest university in Milan and the biggest technical university in Italy. One question I really like to ask people in tech on this podcast is if you were starting out now with the aim of working in tech, would you go to university and study computer science? In your LeanPub profile, you say you, quote, like both the tech theoretical and practical aspects of computer science, end quote. So I think I can guess the answer, but I thought I would ask you anyway. So I think the answer might surprise you because it's no. Oh, um, it's surprising. Let me clarify a bit. Um, so I studied telecommunications. Uh, which in Milan uh, was um, one of uh, three major branches of uh, um, electronic engineering. Uh, the other two are like pure uh, electronics, so, so hardware and computer science. And telecommunication was somehow in between. Um, it was like, a, I, I like this mix between hardware and software the use of mathematics and physics for something practical. It seemed to me like a, like a big world uh, I could explore. Computer science at the time, it looked, uh, it, it looked, this was my impression, I'm not saying that this is what it was, but it looked much more, um, I would say, narrow-minded. Uh, <laughs> I got this feeling of it being very bureaucratic, if you if you see what I mean, like um, the documentation is more important than the software itself. Um, I give you this example because I got in touch with uh, computer science during my, my uh, during telecommunications, studying telecommunications. Uh, I studied operating systems because I liked the subject and I took the course. I was already uh, using Linux, you know, so I was into kernel, not maybe not kernel programming, but under, understanding what, what it was. Uh, so I took the course, and and this and the first part of the course um, ended with uh, a project, 
which was part of the final exam. Um, it was a simple, uh, let's say, uh, concurrency problem, uh, like a system that spawns uh, multiple processes, processes and had them communicate through a, a messaging system. It was like a post office, you know. Uh, I, I enjoyed it a lot. Uh, actually, I enjoyed it so much that I wrote six blog posts on that project and actually I opened the blog to publish those posts. So it was really, I, I was really into it. So I remember at, uh, at the exam, you know, it was like demo time and the teacher asked me, okay, do you have the, your project? I, I was so excited, you know, to see all these processes spinning up and getting in touch with the main process, somehow a micro universe. Uh, and and the teacher was like, yeah, okay, can you show me the documentation, specifications, use cases, you know? I, I was flabbergasted, <laughs> speechless, speechless, because I, I thought, can't, can't you see the, the beauty of this thing? So I, I don't like methodologies when uh, they are, um, how can I say, so arid, you know, so like detached from, from the real stuff. Uh, again, this was my perception. You know, I might be completely wrong, but in the end, I enjoyed the communications uh, for the reason you know I mentioned, and I would do it again. Well, no, no, wait. I, I don't know if I would be available to take thirty exams again, but I enjoyed it. <laughs> it's funny you say that about exams. Thank you for the wonderful stories, by the way. I should say um, it's funny you say that about exams. I was thinking of some similar thing the other day, whereas you know I might see myself as being wiser than my younger self. I certainly don't, I think, have the kind of energy to tackle exams in the way that, that I could when I was younger. Um, <laughs> one thing I like to ask people about on this podcast is what the startup scene is like in countries where they've lived. And I know it you don't live there anymore, and it's a very broad question about a very big country, but can you uh, tell our listeners a little bit about what the tech startup scene is like in Italy? Yeah, sure. Um, well, I'm not an expert, but when I left Italy uh, two years and a half ago, um, it, it wasn't a sorry state, actually. Uh, there were some companies, some startups here and there uh, scattered around the country. Um, I really struggled to find them. I was looking for a new job. You know, I liked the, um, like being in a small company more than in a big one. Um, the thing is there are not many investors and somehow the bureaucracy is, a, is, is tough, you know, it, it's enough to cool down initiative in some people, in, in me, for sure, <laughs> in other people, fortunately not. But like I saw something changing these two years, you know, following on Twitter, getting in touch with some people. It seems to me that um, there are more startups uh, I heard of. Like in Milan, for example, it's it's the biggest industrial city in Italy, so it's a it's a good measure of what's happening in the country. Uh, still, I believe the the comparison with uh, like London is disheartening. Uh, it's completely different, but I don't know. Times uh, times are changing. Maybe uh, yes. Well, if someone from Italy is listening, <laughs> I want to say just go on, you know, because I, I personally completely lack any, uh, how is it called in English, entrepreneur, entrepreneurial skills, you know, uh, I'm not that type. But 
I can see myself like in the future um, helping small companies maybe there to go um, at least on the technical side and not founding anything uh, and not the type. So, but yeah. As I gathered researching for this interview, you spent much of your career in Milan uh, working on a satellite imagery processing system. And then a couple of years ago, as I think you just mentioned, you, you switched industries and you moved to London. What prompted that big career move? Cool. Uh, so I... I learned a lot in my previous company. Uh, I had a lot of freedom or responsibilities. Uh, they hired me. I was just, I just got my degree. So uh, we built some, some very big systems for this uh, in satellite imagery processing. Um, some, some very big things, some from scratch. I learned a lot for the better or worse. Anyway, uh, yeah, I learned a lot. After 13 years, however, which is, um, it was time to move on. Um, basically, I realized that um, the place wasn't challenging me anymore. It was what I did was enough for the company, uh, which is perfectly fair. Um, but I know, you know, I, I was 38, not 90. So, well, <laughs> I hope I will learn new stuff until I die. But, however, it was time to to do some, so something different. Um, I, I surveyed some uh, startups uh, in the country, basically, more in the Milan area, but uh, around Italy. And and then eventually, uh, well, I, t I tried to go to the US. My my idea was like I tried the visa. Uh, what's the name? Uh, visa lottery, you know, is like if I if I if I win the lottery, it's a good sign that I have to go there. If I don't win it, it's maybe maybe I have to stay here. I I tried in Dublin, and then a friend of mine told me, "Are you crazy? Why don't you go to London?" And and the thing is, I I had this sort of prejudice. I don't know I don't know why. I really don't know, but uh, it was like I I thought. London is all about finance, which is obviously there's a lot of finance here, but it's all, all about financial software. And I felt like I don't want to be uh, that in such a stressful environment. You know, I'm a, I'm a slow thinker. So uh, when people press me, it's like, no, no, please. <laughs> um, so I excluded London. And this friend of mine eventually said, told me, are you crazy? Try it. You know, so I tried and I, and I found a job in like two weeks. Well, actually, I found three, uh, three offers. And I have to blame my um, the, the boss of my company, Kate, because she definitely uh, sold me the whole thing. She she convinced me so so much. Um, however, as I used to say, some, sometimes half joking, uh, I'm a backend infrastructure engineer. So basically, my job doesn't change if the company goes, you know, from satellite imagery to I don't know producing shoes. Uh, I say half joking uh, because obviously um, the requirements of the, the, this present company are different. Uh, so we provide services to film productions. Uh, so we have a web application, different types of data, like users online 24 hours a day. Um, previously, I, I run long processing jobs uh, and I, I didn't have any um, user online, you know, so different requirements. But I don't feel like I went in the opposite direction, so to speak. Uh, but that said, I love, I like films, you know. So I'm, I feel like I'm, I'm a bit behind the scenes. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, 
I don't know. I, I don't see shoots and stars and directors, you know, but load balancer and databases. But it's it's part of the whole thing. So it's good when when I go to the cinema, I think, well, you know, they did this because of me some, somehow. <laughs> yeah, that's that's just fantastic. What a what a great story. Uh, one of the one of the fun things about this podcast is that we get to talk to authors living all over the world. You've been based in London for two and a half years now, and I was wondering if you would talk a little bit about the mood in the tech sector there on the subject of Brexit. Is it something you have reason to be personally or professionally concerned about? I lived in London for about nine years and thrived there professionally in a way I never could have in Canada, and I found the multinational nature of life in the city to be exciting and inviting, which I confess influences my thoughts on the subject of Brexit. Yeah, well, (laughs) it's a dangerous topic, Uh, uh, you know. Well, tomorrow I have to go to the office, so I don't, I don't want to raise. No, no, no. I'm joking. Well, jokes aside, um, the real thing is, I believe no, nobody seems to know what's going to happen. Uh, personally, I don't know. We, we tend to think that people who run countries, uh, uh, at least, is something I tend to think that people who run countries are always like in control. And they clearly understand consequences and power balance and this complex stuff. But it's not true. I mean, it's it's not true. Um, there's this Spanish uh, Spanish uh, sociologist uh, called um, Mikel Azumendi, who recently said that economics, uh, how is it, can always explain why things happen later, but never predict them. And I think this is very true. Uh, so actually, what will happen to this country after Brexit? God knows. At least he knows. But uh, I don't know. I, I'm not that concerned personally because, you know, this thing about visas is like the U.S. is already like this. So it's not a big issue. But I'm I'm concerned for the country because everything could happen. I'm not an economist, so, uh, you know, I, I'm not an expert. Um, as for the moods, I don't know, in London, people, you know, the vote was mostly against it. So people are concerned. I, I can't really say what what's the mood in the rest of the country because I don't travel that much. It's definitely a big, uh, a big thing. <laughs> I don't know if this is a good answer. <laughs> Yeah, no, I think I think that's a very good answer. Uh, in particular, I like your appreciate your observations about politicians and economists. Um, <laughs> I think it's uh, a lot of people are are coming to the understanding that there are people who are presumed to be experts in areas where there might not even be the possibility of real expertise. Um, yeah. Moving on to the subject of where where, where there are experts, and you're one, uh, the subject of how to write software uh, and your book. Um, on your LinkedIn profile, you write about how your view of software engineering is based on four pillars, reality, knowledge, team, and perfection. Uh, I'm interested in all of those, but I'm particularly interested in asking you what you mean by reality. Could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, well, thanks for the question. It's uh, something I, I really... Uh, I really want to talk about, um, well, I I believe one of the biggest risks uh, for any business and uh, on a a smaller scale for for engineers, you know, for a developer is that of um, over-engineering, over-engineering solutions. Uh, Like, 
you, I don't know, you, you need to send an email and you build an operating system, you know. Uh, it sounds funny somehow, but it's one of the most common errors. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very good at it, you know. I start thinking, uh, what if this, what if that, and then, uh, you know, something that should should end in two days and three months later, maybe. So it's it's not bad to think, what if? But this might get out of control easily. Uh, and this is why uh, in, in that LinkedIn profile you, you mentioned, I was quoting uh, Reinhold Niebuhr uh, when he says, nothing is so incredible as an answer to an unasked question. I find this uh, a very precious advice for my job because it's what what you have in front of you, you know, reality, the facts, the, the, that client, that uh, limitation, for example, something that, you know, technology cannot do. Uh, this is what guides you in achieving a, bet, a better, I don't know, a better solution, your goal. Uh, it's sometimes it means that you have to give up, you know, that amazing feature that you really desperately want to include, you know, the latest, coolest JavaScript library, whatever. Uh, but this keeps you on track. And not saying that someone shouldn't try to uh, solve problems, on the contrary, is the, the problem dictates what you have to do. Um, so this is why I say uh, that reality is a, um, an ally, you know, like in a war. Do you see what I mean? Uh, like, I mean, in, in life, not only on my job, you know. Uh, yeah, that's it. Yeah, I just just as a brief aside, one of the reasons it, it struck me so much is that I, I've had some limited experience working with, with developers on projects myself. And one thing that struck me was there was a certain type of person who would say, you know, if they were given a requirement, they would say, well, I, I, I wouldn't use that. And yeah. it always struck me like, who who cares? This isn't about this. This isn't about you personally. And, and I, I mean that in a kind of a harsh way, like a lot of people really put themselves in front of of reality rather than behind it. Uh, and you need you need to have a concept of something outside yourself that you're trying to think in correspondence with. It doesn't mean you have to agree, but it's just recognizing that your own thoughts are not coextensive with reality. Your knowledge is not coextensive with knowledge and your preferences are not universal. Uh, and it, these sound like basic things to say, but a lot of people, the way they conduct themselves themselves in their lives, don't don't hew to those those principles. So that's I, I really appreciated that that you know coming across that concept in your bio there and and in your explanation just now. As I mentioned, in thank the, you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Actually, what, what you said, thank thank you because what you said is really what I was trying to say. You know, better English. But <laughs> Um, as I mentioned in the introduction to this interview, uh, your book is called Clean Architectures in Python, A Practical Approach to Better Software Design. Uh, I wanted to ask you just a basic question. What led you to write the book? Yes. Um, okay. Uh, as you mentioned uh, in the introduction, I am uh, running a blog. I'm writing some posts since uh, 2013. And at a certain point in 2016... I wrote this uh, big blog post about clean architectures because at the time I got in touch through an Italian colleague of mine um, with 
what um, Robert Martin was saying in um, Rails conferences, uh, Ruby on Rails conferences, you know, was starting to talk about this clean architecture. Um, so I, I got in touch with the, the with the topic. I liked the thing, uh, and I wrote a blog post. It it got um, how do you say? Uh, it got well received. And so after a while, I was like, you know, reviewing it, and I found a couple of not maybe not errors, but you know, things that wow, this could be explained better. So I wanted to expand it. I was working on it. Um, unfortunately, it was already very long. Uh, so I started thinking maybe I should split into a, you know, serious or smaller posts, or whatever. At the, at the same time, uh, I was going, uh, at some conferences, uh, like the Python UK, the Python, uh, Ireland, I was giving this, um, introduction to TDD. Uh, it, it's a workshop I, I, I give sometimes, um, like four hours doing TDD with people who don't know anything about it, uh, like test-driven development. So um, I saw that people were really interested in this approach. They, 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 they were happy of discovering that there is some way to write better software somehow. But they all, they were like <laughs> somehow asking, um, you know, um, like, how do I start doing the real stuff? Um, it's like, okay, it's like the joke I found, I found online this, this small joke, um, about drawing tutorials, you know, it's called how to draw an owl, like the bird. And it's two steps, you know, it's, uh, the first step is two circles and it, the text says, draw some circles. And the second step is a, is a beautiful and drawn owl. And he says, well, now draw the rest of this freaking owl. <laughs> uh, and I understand why when beginners feel like that, you know, because it's what happens to me sometimes. They, you give me, uh, I don't know, this is how you define a function in Python, you know? Now go and write a new Facebook. Uh, th there's something missing, isn't there? Um now, I'm, I'm not saying that my book, you know, uh, explains how to write a new Facebook from a Python function at, at all. <laughs> but I felt like I wanted to give the readers of the blog like a good introduction to a process from the ground up, you know. Let's start with an empty uh, page and build something. And I was trying to find the best way to do this thing uh, when I found this post by Tracy Osborne, who is a Limpub author. And the post was about self-publishing, her experience about self-publishing. Um, and yeah, I thought maybe a book is the best way, you know, and here we are, like, testing this idea. <laughs> uh, it's funny, I, I'm going to indulge in an, an as, another aside here. Um, when you were talking about how there's often, you know, it's sort of with your story about the, the, the owl example, how there's a sort of gap that's often there that sort of people who've become experts sort of don't realize they've left in their explanation. And uh, on the subject of film as well, it reminds me an example I love to give of this is, you know, conventionally, we hear the story, here's the biography of the famous director, he was working in a movie store. And then what do you know, now he's directed Reservoir Dogs. Uh, and you always you, you often wonder, well, yeah, but really, but like, how did you get from A to 
A to B. Um, and uh, with the story of Tarantino, he actually at one point does say exactly how he did it. So he was working in a video store and he had this script and his colleague's girlfriend worked out with Harvey Keitel's girlfriend. And so through that path, he got his script to Harvey Keitel, who then got in touch with him and said, let's make this movie. Uh, and anyway, I wanted to, I wanted to say I'm very, I'm very sympathetic to the, the metaphor that you, that you gave for that and, and the, the particular problem, because it is so common, not, not just in programming, but in, in all areas where people are trying to explain things, there is so often this big gap. And it's always just such a revelation when someone uh, doesn't leave that gap. Um, a big part of your book you mentioned is about TDD or test-driven development. Uh, for those listening who might not know, can you talk a little bit about what test-driven development is and why it's important for building good software? Sure. Um, well, long story short, um, the idea is the idea is that before you write like a single line of code uh, to implement a feature you want, you have some, <clears throat> sorry, you have some process, like we, we call it a test, that says, uh, well, that feature is missing. And, and when you implemented the feature, uh, the same process runs again and... Uh, it gives you a pat on the back, you know, and says, well done, this feature works. So these tests, these um, check processes are always run against the code while you while you develop the features. And this allows you to check that when you change the code, because eventually you are going to change the code, you are not screwing up what you what, what you did before. Like you are removing features, you know, introducing bugs. This happened to me a lot of times. It still happens. Fortunately, I have tests sometimes that say, well, no, <laughs> you, you are not going to do this because this in reintroduces a bug that you solved one month ago. And I believe it's a very important methodology. It can lead to better software. Um, and also, I also can lead to good sleep because... You know, uh, when you know that the, the new version of the software you just deployed in production uh, is running, is is not bugged, uh, you know, um, well, you sleep well. <laughs> it's not bugged. Okay, <clears throat> so obviously this doesn't mean, so not bugged means it's not affected by bugs that you tested. Okay, so TDD is not the magic wand that fixes everything. It's not a fairy tale. But it's a good process to face software maintenance, you know, and development. So why not? You've written on your blog in a post on studying retro programming and the Amiga that, uh, quote, learning architectures is a perfect way to become a better programmer, end quote. Just to get started on the topic, some of our listeners might not be all that familiar with the concept of architecture when it comes to computer software and hardware. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the concept of architecture in this context. Uh, in, in your book, I believe you use the example of a shop to, to explain the concept. Good question. Um... So the the purpose of an engineering is uh, is solving problems, right? And it turns out that there are uh, like multiple ways to solve a problem, even in the physical world. Um, just not to repeat the example of the shop. So maybe people will go and, and read it in the book. Um, let's say you need water at home. Uh, you can 
dig uh, a well and go there with a bucket. Or you can build an aqueduct or pipes, you know, and have it from the top at home. And these are different architectures, so different solutions to the same problem uh, with different costs, different maintenance problems, different flexibility. <clears throat> For example, uh, the cost of an aqueduct is higher up front. It's cheaper to, to, to dig the well, probably, I don't know. But the aqueduct saves you to go out every 10 minutes. So on the long run, it's better. But maybe you don't have enough money. So you have to go with a simpler and cheaper solution, so to dig a well. At which point the question is, okay, now you go for the simpler solution, but can you easily switch to a better solution later in the future? And then you have like different layers of the architecture because when you decided to build the pipes, uh, you have to decide, I don't know, the material for the pipes, the configuration inside the building and so on. I, I don't know because I'm not a plumber, but uh, this is the extent of my example. But <laughs> moving to the software world, you know, you might say, uh, let's build an app to solve this problem. This is what my startup does, you know. But then you have to decide the language, you have to decide the framework, the way you distribute it, the way you upgrade it, uh, and so on. So all these things are part of the architecture, how these um, components, these small parts of the business, if you want, work together. I believe this is something that extends outside the software world, you know, uh, actually, when you run a, a company, you, you know this better than me, you know, it's not enough to have the product, then you have to sell it, then you have to get in touch with uh, uh, your customers like you are doing with me now. So it's, it's a process. And a lot of components that can be maybe they can, they can be perfect but linked in a wrong way and this leads to failure uh maybe they is better if they are less than perfect but linked in a good way and and you can you can go on uh, this is the the architectural idea I think that's I think that's a good lead into my next question, which is um, when I was researching for this interview and I came across your post on the Amiga, um, I gather there was a specific issue with the Amiga's hardware that made it uniquely unsuited to run the game Doom. Uh, I found that quite curious, and it seemed like a good. I mean, insofar as that's true, it sounded like a very good example. I mean, most people just think of computers as they kind of ought to, as these sort of universal machines, uh, but actually, you know, of, of course. Uh, some hardware is more suited to some tasks than others. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that example, if you know the answer, about how integrated hardware and software can be. Uh, yeah, this is a tricky question, and the answer is a bit complex. <coughs> um, actually, well, you should ask uh, Fabian Sangler, that, you know, he just published a book on the Doom game engine, uh, I still have to read it, but the, the, the previous book he published on Wolfenstein 3D was simply amazing, uh, so well written. Anyway, okay, I might try to give you a quick answer. I hope Fabian will not chase me, you know. So Doom was a game with um, certain requirements of speed and graphic quality, and the guys at ID Software, I'm, I'm pretty sure they used all sorts of dirty tricks they knew to achieve that, that goal because 
you know what? Well, Doom was an earthquake in the software world. You know, it was amazing. And the PC was a terrible machine for games. Well, actually, it was a terrible machine full stop. But mm, architecturally speaking, so uh, uh, more on this later. But let, well, let's say that the, the way hardware worked on the PC and the way the software had to work to access the hardware, like memory, was um, convoluted, to say the least. It was really, really strange. I don't know why they came up with such solutions. However, PCs had one thing in 1993 when Doom came out, uh, which is power, computing power. The minimum system requirements for Doom, uh, I, if memory serves, they, they were like a 486 microcessor running at full speed, so 66 megahertz and 8 megabytes of RAM. At, at that time, it was a lot. Uh, it worked on lesser PCs, you know, but with lower resolution, it was a bit slow. The Amiga is a completely different machine. Uh, so the bare, the bare uh, Motorola CPU wasn't as, as fast as a 486 at all. Um, the Amiga is a, an amazing machine because it um, was is I don't know it's immortal. <laughs> it is an amazing machine because it has like coprocessors, you know, they work together with the CPU concurrently. But you have to write the software to exploit this feature. Otherwise, you just have a very slow, or well, uh, yeah, a slow central microprocessor, definitely slower than a four A six. So if you think uh, about it, PCs went the same way with uh, GPUs later. Uh, you might run a PC game without a GPU. like um, So basically using the CPU for everything, I believe it would be painfully slow because the GPU is a coprocessor doing an incredible amount of things. Um, so this, I, be, I believe ID didn't go for the, the didn't try to, to port uh, Doom for the Amiga for this reason. It, it would have meant rewriting the whole thing from scratch. Uh, but it's interesting, however, that you know this architectural thing, it's it's linked with sometimes it's linked with um, failure or success of a product. Actually, as I mentioned, the Intel eighty six architecture. So the way the hardware is structured and the way the software has to be written to, to use the hardware is, is terrible. <laughs> but it was successful for, for several reasons. It's, it's too, too, too long a story now. But uh, another, another example instead could be the um, uh, cell processor that was inside the PlayStation 3 developed by IBM with uh, Toshiba and Sony. That was a failure. Because the cell processor was meant to be in uh, IBM's uh, dreams, <laughs> it was meant to be the new uh, X86, you know, the, the, the new Intel um, processor to replace them. Uh, it was too different. I remember I went to a course uh, on how to to program this cell processor in, in 2005, I believe. It was too difficult. It was, you know, back to the assembly days, uh, which was fine when we were programming an Amiga C64. But in 2005, 
no way. So obviously this is one of the reasons of the failure of that thing, you know, it's, it's more complex than this. But just to say that this architecture uh, thing is important and about what you asked, uh, yeah, um, the Amiga can run Doom. There are ports that when, when, the, when the project was uh, open sourced, people developed uh, Amiga versions of the thing. I don't believe the porting was easy. You know, it was just, it's not just recompiling the source code with the Amiga C compiler and that's it. No way, because it's a completely different machine. Thank you for that great, great and detailed answer. It's, it's, it's just so interesting to hear that the stories behind all this technology that, that, uh, that we have around us and, and, and to know its history as well. Can you talk a little bit about what it means for architecture to be clean? Yes, definitely. Um, so clean, um, it means, okay, it, it means that you know exactly where a component is and why the component is there. And the data flow in between components is clear. So forget for a moment software uh, or hardware, think about a company, you know, you know where someone is uh, and why they are there. So you, you meet someone in the corridor and you think, oh, why this person is doing this job? You know, it's not just a number. I don't, I'm not really sure what this person is doing this company. So uh, like, I don't know, picture an, um, uh, an untidy room. You know, you have, uh, sometimes I see them in films, you know, you have clothes everywhere, open boxes, I don't know, the socks on the bed lamp, you know. <laughs> and then you are like, where are my keys, you know, and you spend one hour looking for them because it's a mess. And eventually you find them, well, hopefully. Um, so what well, my point is even unclean architectures or unclean rooms work. But. Well, time is money, you know. So in a software system, uh, when you have to change something, it's good to quickly find what you have to change and be sure uh, that like turning off, <laughs> like, uh, uh, I don't know, like turning off the bed lamp doesn't set the garage on fire. You, you see what I mean? It's like sometimes systems even systems that I, de I, I, I created, so I'm, 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 I've, I'm to blame. <laughs> uh, like sometimes systems are so convoluted that, um, you know, you act on one thing, you change something on this side, and this has an effect on the on something completely different. You know, this is a, a bad sign because, uh, well, yes, the, the clean architecture, uh, is the name that um, Robert Martin gave to a way of structuring software, which existed previously. It's just it's just a name, you know, for something that we did and we we forgot, like he says, and it it was clean. <laughs> Smart is another name if you want. It's funny you you reminded me when I was a young university student. Uh, I had I was a sort of relatively tidy guy, and I had a a really really messy roommate at one point. And I remember him sort of trying to make fun of me at one point because you know I kept my this was in the days of 
CDs. I kept them in alphabetical order. And, mm. you know, for my part of the fridge, you know, the, this, the juice went there and the bread went there. And uh, yeah, he, he tried to make fun of me once for being, you know, kind of, I guess in, in your terms, kind of arid about things. And I said, no, you don't understand. I'm lazy. I'm really, really lazy. Uh, and the last thing I want to do is have to hunt through a stack of CDs that are not ordered in order to find the one I'm looking for. When if I just sort of implement some order at the beginning, I'll be able to find what I'm looking for more quickly. Uh, and and it's it's interesting this sort of you know as you say the messy room the messy room still works, uh, but but time is time is money. Um, so moving on, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit. Well, I think I think you mentioned Tracy Osborne, but if you could talk a little bit about you, so you've decided to write this book and then you you found out about LeanPub. Why did you choose LeanPub as the platform for publishing your book and writing it? Yes. Uh, so, um, well, Tracy Osborne is to blame, um, the one the one to blame because uh, I read the post and whatever, but I already knew Limpub because uh, a friend of my, a colleague of mine uh, and a friend of mine showed me, um, what's the name? Ansible for DevOps. Uh, it's by uh, Jeff Gearling? Gearling, I believe. Um so you know, I I already I already news about this um, self-publishing platform, and after I read uh, Tracy's um, post, um, I you know I I didn't know what to do, so I started googling things like I don't know self-published technical book and whatever. Uh, I knew LaTeX, you know, I knew other things, so I was trying to find a way to do it, and yeah, well, Google showed me Limpub is one of the first uh, results if you if you look for self-publishing luckily um, so I read a, a bit about the Marqua processor and at that at that point I knew instantly that I found what I, what I was looking for because you know I, I write the blog and the book uh, I wrote the book in, in my spare time so half of the book is it was written on the bus in the morning uh, half an hour uh, a time. So, uh, if uh, if sixty percent of the time is spent formatting a title, you know, or the footnote notes, uh, publishing becomes a nightmare. I'm not interested in that thing. Uh, it's already too much for me to think about the content, you know. Then it was English, so I was, you know, I had to proofread it and whatever. So, for me, the real plus of Limpub is the platform. Definitely. So the idea of the uh, magical typewriter, you know, as as it's described in the documentation, uh, then obviously like the the the, the fee uh, and the high royalties are good points, definitely. But minor ones, uh, as far as I'm concerned. I can see from the change log in your book that people have been giving you some feedback, and you've been incorporating their feedback into the book. This is a really interesting thing uh, that uh, you know quite a few LeanPub authors do, and they often have their own process. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you manage uh, getting feedback about things like typos from people, and then it, it, you know incorporating that feedback into your book. Yes, uh, well, the, the it's a technical book, so I expected readers to be familiar with it. You know, I'm hosting the source source text, source code of the book uh, on GitHub. So I'm, I just invited people to submit issues or pull requests there. Um, some users kindly submitted fixes for typos, you know, bad grammar. There was uh, obvious, obviously happening. Um, 
so I just merge the pull requests uh, or fix the dimension typos, and that's it. Uh, actually, last week uh, something different happened because a reader found an I tried it. Um, a reader found an issue with the code ah. I published. Uh, it's not the the code is not wrong, but it basically showed me that my code fails in a specific case that I did not test, and I was so happy because uh, this is TDD in practice. So can, can you see it? I mean. TDD does not mean perfect software, but it means that that reader, so it was extremely simple for that reader to, to write a test and fix the problem. And now so, and so I, now I want to incorporate this thing in the book. So I, I really explicitly want to say, this was the code previously, but then a reader jumped in and said, no, you have to add this thing. So this will will be like a section of the of the whole thing it's like meta publishing <laughs> um the the only thing is at this point the i have to change the book and i have to change the code repository which is linked and the repository is tagged you know to to provide references in the book so this whole task is a bit tedious and i had this problem previously in some blog posts so to keep in sync the the article or the post and um, the, the the repository, and I believe I, I'm gonna end up sooner or later to write some some tool to deal with this thing because I'm really sick of doing it manually. But at the, at, at this point of the whole story is it's a completely manual process. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I found quite striking about your book uh, is the cover. Um, it's when it, it, you know, it's very important thing for people who are publishing books, whether they're, you know, a publishing company or a self-published author to choose an interesting cover. And yours reminds me a little bit of the style of Guillermo del Toro. Uh, I was just wondering, and I think you, I believe you found it on the website pxhere.com. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that image. Definitely. Uh, it's interesting. You, you, I never connected with del Toro, but, uh, when, when you, when, now that you mention it, you know, it's like, yeah, you're right. Um, so, well, the picture is part of the, um, what is it called? The ceiling of the Sagrada Familia, uh, a church in Barcelona, which is the masterpiece of Antoni Gaudí. Uh, it's one of the most important architects in the world, well, was. And it, it, that church is one of the most beautiful things I saw in my life. Uh, full stop. <laughs> so I chose it um, on purpose, um, not only because it's beautiful, you know, um, but because the Sagrada Familia is a building where um, everything has a purpose. Yeah, that's it. So th there is no single part of that church that is there just because, you know, it's beautiful, or, you know, for no reason, just like that. Because Gaudí had something in mind, and obviously being a church, the reasons behind things are connected with faith, you know. So I personally appreciate them twice because I'm, I'm a believer, but that aside, the connection with the clean architecture, I believe, is clean. It's, it's very clear because... In a clean architecture, not a single part is random. And looking at the Sagrada Familia, I think the result of this thing, 
this uh, way of structuring things is not only functional, it's also incredibly beautiful. So I don't know, may, may our software be the same? <laughs> so functional and beautiful. That's, that's why the, I chose the, that picture. Thank you for that wonderful explanation. I'll, I'll make sure to have uh, links in the transcription of this interview so that people can, can find their way to uh, images of this beautiful building. Um, Thank you. Going from, from the sublime to the, the gritty, I suppose, pricing is one of the biggest decisions <laughs> you make when you self-publish a book or when you publish a book traditionally, as I said before about covers. Um, your book has both a free minimum and a free suggested price. And uh, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about why you decided to make your book free like that. Sure. Um, well, the first thing I want to say is that... Um, so writing is not my job, you know, so I already have a job, I get a salary, and that's enough to live. So what I'm gonna say, obviously, is valid for people that are not uh, professional authors, um, like me. Um, that said, so the, the reason why I publish it for free is, uh, so I briefly mentioned it in the introduction, is the same reason behind the blog, you know, or why I release uh, open source software, I go to conferences to give workshops. Uh, I strongly believe in sharing knowledge. Uh, it comes to me now that I'm here at in this very moment, you know, telling you this uh, on the other side of the world, because basically some people shared their code in the 80s, you know, because some people find the time to write, you know, Stack Overflow answers because someone wrote, I don't know, VI, Bash, uh, the Linux kernel and so on. I don't, uh, cannot mention all, these are too, too many things, you know, to mention. I feel like I am returning the favor somehow, and probably not to the same people because they are much more uh, advanced than me, but um, I don't know, I... Uh, can I say in English, I keep the fire burning, so to speak, you know? Uh, it's like, uh, well, what's, how, how does it go? Uh, like standing on the shoulders of giants is the, the sentence, you know? It's like, I am a dwarf, and I stand on the shoulders of giants, and I give my contribution, and, and the giant becomes taller, and then someone comes. So that that's why, um, that's it, as I said, it's not, it's not my profession, you know? So I can afford it, my plan, was hopefully to um, get enough money to pay for the Limpub fee, so the, I, I get even. I did it, so thanks for uh, to to anyone who, who gave me some money. Uh, as for the rest, just uh, as I say in the book, download the book and spread the knowledge, which is the, the best thing you can do uh, in, in, as a, to return a favor. Yes. Uh, thanks for that. That also beautiful explanation and, and, and for your generosity. Um, just, just to explain the detail there that might be confusing to some people listening. Um, yes. You can actually have a free and minimum and a free suggested price for a LeanPub book and people can still pay because there we've got these pricing sliders that show you how much you pay and how much the author earns. And actually quite a few people, even though Leonardo's book is free, have, have chosen to pay him in return for his generosity. Um, my last it question... Was, actually, sorry, uh, if I can, yeah. what's, to, what's um, impressed me a lot is that uh, clearly some people wanted to give me a certain amount of, of money so they, they slided 
uh, they, they paid a strange amount of money, like 10.15, you know, just to give me a certain amount of, of money. It was like every time I received the email and it says someone purchased the book, you know, and they paid something like five pounds or whatever, I, I think, well, thank you, you know, thank you, <laughs> really. Yeah, it's 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 interesting you bring that up. That's that's sort of like deep deep lean pub. We had that experience ourselves years ago when we introduced the the pricing slider that shows how much the author earns. Um, and uh, yeah, we would notice people would be paying these sort of odd prices. And what was happening was they were looking at how much the author was going to get, um, yeah. and that's what they were interested in. And we that was just so. I mean, it was kind of you know a, a confirmation of a theory. But it, but it was a very important thing for us to confirm that, you know, when, when, when royalty rates are high enough, people are more concerned about how much they're giving to, and, and when a book is self-published, people are more concerned with how much they're giving the author than they are with the overall price that they're paying. Um, Definitely. And there's, there's, this, there's a, this connection that's established between the reader and the author that just, you can't really establish in a normal commercial exchange. Um, my last question about your book is that I, I noticed there's a, a Russian translation of it in the works by Alexei uh, Piltsin. Uh, how did that come about? I'm curious, a lot of authors, you know, when they finish their book, they do think about getting translations. Did you approach Alexei or did he approach you? No, it came out of the blue. So uh, Alexei sent me a message saying that um, he liked the book. He was interested in translating it. Um I was I was already amazed enough by the you know the amount of downloads the book had so this this was like the the, the icing on the cake <laughs> um I I saw he's pretty active in in this field because he already translated other books uh, so I quickly agreed because I'm I'm so happy about it um I I was I was thinking uh, should I translate it in Italian because you know I I might do it. <laughs> uh actually a friend of mine told me you might do a favor to Italian developers and leave it in English so they learn something. <laughs> uh, I don't know if the if the English in my book is is good enough but you know it's maybe maybe it's true so I'm I'm going to leave it like it is for the moment. Well, I, I can say, uh, having read much of the book myself, the English is definitely good enough, uh, and the thousands of readers, uh, I think, are their proof as well. Um, my last question for you is the question I always like to ask last in these interviews. Um, if you could ask us to build one thing or fix one thing on LeanPub, what would you ask us to do? Well, I have to say that, uh, I don't know, so far I didn't feel like I was missing some important feature so well done <laughs> uh, one thing that might be useful is an on offline macro processor but uh, this is definitely not part of the limpa platform uh, i believe in the platform uh, it's not easy to see what happens um, when you change the themes parameters uh, but i I'm, I'm pretty sure i'm nitpicking because as far as I'm concerned, I really found the whole experience so good. Uh, I, I wouldn't say anything. You know, don't don't change it. Yeah. Well, thank thank you very much for that. I mean, we uh, we we can't take all the credit, uh, of course. Um, you know, LeanPub has been developed uh, alongside the experience of authors like like yourself over the course of years, and it's by talking to people and listening that we help make it make it better for authors, uh, specifically uh, on the subject that 
you just brought up, uh, we actually did have someone ask us about that earlier this week about they were specifically talking about fonts you know you can choose fonts from a drop down but mm. what are those fonts going to look like and you're asking the sort of you know from a from a bigger perspective you know if i change my book's uh, theme from you know one set of formatting parameters to another uh, how do i know what it's going to look like afterwards and actually it wouldn't be all that difficult for us to make some lorem ipsum books and get some mm. screenshots and have an article in our help center so i'll add that to my uh task for things for us to do. Uh, my list. For the Amazing. Rest thank for you. Because um, it's a very reasonable and totally, totally understandable thing. Uh, well, thank you very much, Leonardo, for this great interview. I, I really enjoyed it. Um, and thank you for taking the time to be on the podcast and be a Lean Pub author. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks. And thanks, as always, to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter podcast. If you like what you heard, Please subscribe in iTunes and rate and review the podcast. It really does help, as everyone who hosts a podcast says. And if you'd like to be a Lean Pub author, either of a book or a course, please head on over to leanpub.com and click on Why Lean Pub at the top. Thanks.